tonight's special report. Buddy Holly, Richie Valens and the Big Bopper go for a fly and never come back. British and French forces begin Battle of Karen to capture town of Karen. And Hitler announces Germanization of Lebensraum in Eastern Europe. Plus, coming up, the world's most incompetent parachutist has been thrown out of the skydiving club for being too bad. Those are the headlines. The news be with you. News Bang. Unveiling the veil of deceit one thread at a time. Louis Dern, 1959. Tragedy struck the world of music today as three of its brightest stars were extinguished in a plane crash. Buddy Holly, Richie Valens, and JP with the big bopper Richardson all perished when their aircraft plummeted from the skies like an overcooked roast potato. The event has been dubbed The Day the Music Died, or Hard Day's Nightmare by Beatles fans too soon to be funny. Eyewitnesses described how their hearts were all a-shaking as they saw the doomed Beechcraft Bonanza take off in adverse weather conditions, said one onlooker, Hank Williams Jr. It was like Don McLean's American Pie up there. Bad news on top of bad news. The loss of these musical legends has left fans chantilly lace-clad and weeping in the streets, with condolences pouring in from fellow musicians such as Elvis Presley, who vowed to shake his hips just that little bit harder tonight, but not too hard, out of respect. A night to see, said 1941. Well, here's a blast from the past. It's 1941, and World War II is in full swing. The Allies are up to their eyeballs in Axis, with Free France led by General Charles de Gaulle, not to be confused with his cousin Jean-Paul de Quiche, who decided that collaboration was not their cup of tea. Enter the Battle of Carène, where British and Free French forces launched an all-out assault on the strategic town of Carène in Italian Eritrea. The stakes were higher than Mussolini's trousers. Control of the Red Seaport Masawa was at Stask. Sorry, couldn't resist. For two whole months they fought like cheese-eating surrender monkeys possessed, until finally, fascist Italy waved the white flag or whatever they use as a flag over there. The victory marked a turning point in North Africa. Well, it would have if Rommel hadn't popped up like an unwanted guest with his Africa Corps ruining everything. 1933. And now, a look at the geopolitical situation in Europe. Adolf Hitler, the frenzied Führer of Germany, has set his sights on some Lebensraum. That's German for living room. He's decided he wants more space to put his grandfather clock and recliner, so he's eyeing up Eastern Europe like it's an IKEA catalogue. His plan? To Germanize the place. Think Lederhosen-clad locals singing oompa tunes as they knock back steins of lager. Hitler's maniacal master plan is known as the Greater Germanic Reich, not to be confused with any other kind of Reiches, which sounds like something you get from too much sauerkraut. But this Reich isn't funny. It involves swallowing up half of Europe and spitting out its people like seeds from a giant Third Reich watermelon eating contest. The Allies are watching developments closely, though Chamberlain still thinks he can reason with him over a nice cup of Earl Grey and a Jaffa cake or two. Meanwhile, Stalin in Russia is busy polishing his shovels just in case. News Bang, the daily dose of reality served with a slice of humour. Weather forecast with Shakanaka Giles. Exercise caution on the roads and at the coastline. 
A crisp and chilly morning awaits in our fair isle, with frost nipping at your nose like a playful kitten. Dress warmly as if you're about to dive into a vat of cold custard. The Midlands will be graced by the gentle caress of snowfall, akin to an arctic dove alighting on your windowsill. Expect delays on the roads, but at least you'll have time to enjoy the winter wonderland unfolding outside. The southwest, however, faces a bit of a stormy affair. The waves will be crashing like an overzealous drummer at a rock concert. Best avoid the coastline unless you fancy being swept away in a torrent of salt water and seaweed. In summary, tomorrow brings frosty mornings, snowy afternoons and stormy evenings. Stay warm and safe. And that's all the weather. An eye to see, said 1941. In a dramatic turn of events, British and Free French forces have emerged victorious in the Battle of Kerren, wresting control of the strategic town from Italian forces. This battle, part of the larger World War II conflict that has already claimed the lives of 70-85 million souls, saw Allied forces secure a decisive victory. The year is 1941, and as Free France, led by General Charles de Gaulle, continues to fight against Axis powers, we turn to our correspondent Brian Bastable for further details on this momentous event. From the smoking belly of a battle-scarred Beaufort's, I bring you breaking news. Here on this Eritrean plain, history and horror are shaping today's new war story. As dawn broke over this wasteland, a lone cockerel's cry was drowned by artillery fire and death screams from thousands of men in helmets standing shoulder to shoulder on either side of a line drawn through yesterday's bloodbath. In my pocket there is still an uneaten chocolate digestive that I saved for such a time as this. A quick taste confirms its freshness crunchy like a soldier's knuckles cracking as he punches out his fear with fists of defiance and bravado. These fighting men know what they face. The cold sting of metal-penetrating skin. The deep scarlet glow from below where life gushes into darkness as hope turns black under ominous clouds threatening rain that will wash away their last moments before death steals all memory except the pain which alone will remain forever etched in hellish memories now unfolding across this burning savanna carpeted with corpses destined to feed crows circling above who wait for each final breath to expire before swooping down for supper time while sparrows dance joyfully atop charred tanks, bursting from flames, shooting high into indifferent skies, marking places where soon no one will remember names or dreams anymore. Just broken bones strewn amid scorched earth, echoing forgotten whispers, muttering farewell like dew, vanishing beneath rising sun, heralding endings beyond imagining, but now brought alive here by me for your listening pleasure, because I am Brian Bastable, reporting live on Newsbang. 2014. In a tragic turn of events, the world watches as Russia confronts its first school shooting in modern history. At school number 263 in Moscow, the lives of a teacher and a police officer were brutally extinguished. The perpetrator, 
15-year-old Sergei Gordayev held 29 students hostage before surrendering to authorities, a day that began with promise and potential has been forever marred by this senseless act of violence. Now we hand over to Ken Shit for further details on this unfolding story. Good evening, my fellow degenerates. Let's journey back to the year 2014, a time when Russia was still grappling with the spectre of its own demons. This is the year that brought us bitter cold, icy winds, and a chilling reminder that even the motherland is not immune to the scourge of school shootings. On this fateful day, February 3rd, a nightmare unfolded at school number 263 in Moscow. A 15-year-old demon spawn named Sergei Gordeyev, wielding a weapon that should never have been in the hands of a child, opened fire on his classmates, teachers, and even a police officer. The innocent blood that stained the halls of that school that day was a stain on the very soul of Russia. Gordeyev, a boy twisted by hatred and despair, took 29 students hostage before finally surrendering to the authorities. 29 lives hanging in the balance, their futures snuffed out like a candle in the wind. And for what? For the sick thrill of violence? For the twisted satisfaction of watching life ebb away from those he claimed to care about? This was not an isolated incident. It was a wake-up call, a harbinger of the darkness that was to come. It was a chilling reminder that no place, no matter how sacred, is safe from the clutches of evil. We must stand together, my fellow degenerates, and demand change. We must demand that our leaders take action to prevent such tragedies from happening again. We must demand that our children be safe in their schools, that they be free from the fear of violence and the spectre of death. This is Ken Shit reminding you that we have the power to make a difference. Let us not stand idly by as the darkness consumes us. Let us fight back with every ounce of our being against the evil that threatens to engulf us all. Bordeaux, 1930. In a move that would redefine the political landscape of Southeast Asia, the Communist Party of Vietnam emerged from the merger of three formidable forces, the Communist Party of Indochina, the Communist Party of Annam, and the Communist League of Indochina. The year was 1930 and the winds of change were beginning to stir. The nascent party would go on to seize power in North Vietnam in 1954 and eventually unify the entire nation under its centralized control by 1975. The party's grip on state, military and media has since remained as firm as ever. And for more on this unfolding saga, we turn to our correspondent Hardeman Pesto, Martin, I'm here in Hanoi in 1930 at the founding congress of the Communist Party of Vietnam. There's a real buzz in the air as the delegates gather to form this new United Communist Party. So, Pesto, what can you tell us about the goals and plans of this new party? Well, Martin, I spoke with General Secretary Tran Pu about the party's vision, and he told me they plan to peacefully promote communist ideals like collectivism and central planning. Peacefully? That's not what I heard. My sources say they plan to launch a violent revolution to overthrow the French colonial regime. Oh no no, the General Secretary assured me this will be a purely political movement to enact gradual reform through the democratic process. Pesto, what calendar do you have there? Is it possible you've gotten the date wrong? No no, it's definitely February 3rd, 1930. I triple-checked it after what happened with the Hindenburg disaster report. 
You mean when you reported live from Lakehurst, New Jersey in 1937? Yes, that was an honest mistake. But today is definitely February 3rd, 1930. Well then, how do you explain the fact that the Communist Party of Vietnam wasn't founded until February 3rd, 1951? Um, well, you see, the, the delegates here are just getting a head start on planning the party for when it's officially founded in 1951. Planning the violent overthrow of the French colonial regime 21 years in advance? With delegates who won't even be born for another decade. Did I say violent overthrow? No, no, everyone here is very committed to achieving change through the democratic process. The democratic process that doesn't exist under French colonial rule? Well, you make some good points, Martin. Maybe I should go back and double-check when this party was actually founded. I think that would be wise, Pesto. Though I doubt doubling your faulty facts will make them any more accurate. Right. I'll just be going then. Back to you, Martin. Go on. Get out of here, Pesto, and don't come back until you've got your facts straight. The tasty, uh, 1998. In a tale that has sent shockwaves across the globe, Carla Faye Tucker, the first woman to face execution in the United States since 1984, has been put to death in Texas. Despite a fervent international campaign calling for her sentence to be commuted to life imprisonment, Tucker's pleas fell on deaf ears. Commutation, the act of substituting a lesser penalty for a crime conviction, was not granted to Tucker following her murder conviction in 1984. After spending 14 harrowing years on death row, she took her final breath in 1998. And now we turn to CBN's Melody Wintergreen for further insight into this unfolding story. The clock ticks in Texas, and the Lone Star State is anything but alone tonight. Carla Faye Tucker, the pickaxe princess, awaits her final bow on the stage of mortality. Fourteen years ago, she swung a tool of toil into a weapon of demise. But today, she swings into history as the first woman to face the executioner's lullaby since 84. The world watches, breath baited, as advocates and adversaries clash in a symphony of clemency pleas. The crescendo? a governor's pen poised between life and a lethal lullaby. Tucker's tale has been a cacophony of transformation, from drug-addled desperado to jailhouse Jesus aficionado. Her metamorphosis has sparked a global gab fest, with voices from Vatican vistas to London lanes calling for commutation over condemnation. Yet as dusk descends on Huntsville's hallowed halls, it seems mercy may have missed its cue. The stage is set, the audience hushed. The final act of Carla Faye Tucker's tragedy unfolds not with a pickaxe, but with a potion potent enough to still her once fevered heart. As the chemicals course through her veins, it's clear. Tonight, Texas does not commute but concludes. And so, as Carla Faye Tucker takes her last curtain call in this mortal coils theater, we witness not just an execution, but an epoch extinguished. This is Melody Wintergreen reporting for Newsbang from the front lines of the fight for life in the Lone Star State. Newsbang, the unvarnished truth served raw. Here with the latest in time traveling traffic is Polly Beep. Polly will be guiding us through the maze of 1998 where Italian cable cars and Californian streetcars are making headlines. Good evening, fellow time travellers. 
we're whizzing back to 1998, where the skies above Cavalese, Italy, are having a dreadful day. An EA-6B Prowler, a veritable electronic warfare beast, has just chopped a cable supporting a cable car gondola. 20 passengers are sent plummeting to their doom. The aircraft's crew is reportedly busy redecorating their cockpit with crayons and paper mache. Meanwhile, in the same year, the Muni Metro in San Francisco is making history with the longest streetcar tunnel in the world, the Twin Peaks Tunnel. Measuring a whopping 11,675 feet, it's a veritable odyssey for trams. Commuters are advised to pack a lunch and a change of clothes before embarking on this epic journey. Fast forwarding to the distant past of 1918, we find ourselves in the midst of a London tram frenzy. It seems the city's trams have gone rogue, careening through the streets with reckless abandon. Reports of rogue trams driving up walls and across rooftops are flooding in. Drivers are advised to keep their wits about them and to remember that honking at a tram will not make it go faster. In other news, the Great Wall of China has just been converted into a makeshift highway. Motorists are advised to watch out for tourists and the occasional Mongolian raiding party. And finally, the newly opened Panama Canal is experiencing heavy traffic as boats from all over the world jostle for position in the narrow waterway. Commuters are advised to take the long way round or to invest in a good pair of water wings. That's all for tonight's time-travelling traffic report. Stay safe out there and remember, the past is a dangerous place. Drive responsibly. News bang. A taste of truth, a sip of satire. And now, I'd like to introduce our esteemed correspondent, Sandy O'Shaughnessy. He's here to regale us with historical tales of kings and queens, rebellions and conquests. Take it away, Sandy. Ah, and a hearty good evening to you all. Sandy O'Shaughnessy here, your trusted guide through the winding lanes of history. I've just taken over from Martin Bang, who's off to investigate a suspicious-looking sausage roll. But fear not, dear listeners, for I'm here to regale you with tales of yore, of kings and queens, of rebellions and reconquests. So grab your favourite mug, fill it with something warm and comforting, and let's dive into the past. Ah. <laughs> now, let's travel back to the year 1266. Picture it, if you will. The Mudejar Revolt was in full swing, a rebellion by Muslim populations in the lower Andalusia and Murcia regions of the Crown of Castile. It was a time of turmoil, of clashing swords and rallying cries. The rebels had the support of the Emirate of Granada, but alas, they were no match for the royal forces. Ah. <laughs> the Crown of Castile emerged victorious and in the aftermath, the Muslim populations were expelled and Christians were encouraged to settle in the reconquered territories. It's a bit like a medieval game of musical chairs, isn't it? Only with a lot more swords and a lot less dancing. Ah. <laughs> but let's not forget our friend, King James I of Aragon. He was having quite the adventure of his own. In 1265-1266, he conquered Murcia, a city in southeastern Spain and other territories. He also saw the renunciation of French suzerainty over the county of Barcelona. It's a mouthful, I know, but essentially, it means that King Jimmy was on a roll. 
he was expanding the crown of Aragon, one territory at a time. It's a bit like a game of risk, only with real-life consequences. Ah. <laughs> now, I received a letter from dear old Mrs. O'Reilly in Galway. She writes, Dear Sandy, I've been having trouble with my neighbours. They've taken to playing bagpipes at all hours of the night. Any advice? Well, Mrs. O'Reilly, perhaps you could take a page out of King James's book, conquer their territory and claim it as your own. Or, you know, just ask them to keep it down a bit. Ah. <laughs> and speaking of territorial disputes, I've been having a bit of a tussle myself. You see, I've been trying to claim the last slice of cake in the break room, but Martin Bang keeps getting to it before I do. It's a battle of wits, dear listeners, and I'm determined to come out on top. Ah. <laughs> but for now, it's time for me to bid you all a fond farewell. Remember, history is a tapestry of stories woven together by the threads of time, and we're all just trying to find our place in the pattern. So, until next time, keep your chin up, your spirits high, and your cake slices well guarded. And as always, see you later, alligator, in a wild crocodile. Sandy O'Shaughnessy, signing off. Steve Jobs, the tech titan, has acquired Pixar from Lucasfilm, transforming it into an autonomous computer animation powerhouse. This acquisition has sent ripples through the entertainment industry, with experts predicting that this could be the dawn of a new era in animation. Pixar's successful foray into feature films has left audiences spellbound, and with Lucasfilm being a subsidiary of Walt Disney Studios, the synergy between these giants is bound to create magic. And now we turn to our business correspondent Perkins Stornaway for more on this story. Dogger, moderate, becoming rough. This day in 1986 was momentous, 40s, veering southeast. Steve Jobs, like a pineapple on a bus, purchased Pixar from Lucasfilm, Viking, slight or moderate. He turned it into an independent animation computer studio, Lundy, Fair. Steve's Jobs's decision caused quite a stir in the tech world. Thames, good, occasionally moderate. Pixar, becoming popular overnight, forced a merger with Disney, Hebrides, occasionally rough. This week, Fastnet, Fair, occasionally poor, saw Jobs launching the computer animation process. The 3D computer graphics on this day, Rockall, West or Northwest, four or five brought Lucasfilm and Disney together, Shannon, becoming cyclonic. These graphic legends are also known for their work on Star Wars and Indiana Jones, Trafalgar, West, backing Southwest, five or six. Bailey, wind Southwest, four or five. Pixar's process became widely used in the tech industry, Cromarty, East or Northeast, three or four. The technology had many, many applications. Biscay, light, occasionally rough. The news today, Lundy, fair. Let's look at how the pound performed. Rockall, west or northwest, four or five. It increased against the dollar by 3.9 points. Shannon, south, veering southwest, five or six. In conclusion, Thames, fair, 
occasionally moderate. Steve Jobs's decision to purchase Pixar changed the computer animation world forever. Fair Isle, fair. To wrap up, Hebrides, occasionally rough. Jobs's creation of the computer animation process became a staple in the tech industry. Dogger, moderate, occasionally poor. Today's business. 2010. In a staggering development from the art world, Alberto Giacometti's sculpture, L'Homme qui marche one, fetched a mind-boggling $65 million at auction. This masterpiece is one of six editions crafted in 1961 and has now set the record for the priciest sculpture ever sold. It seems that the previous record holder, also a Giacometti piece, has been dethroned after five years of reigning supreme. Will this spell the beginning of a new era where artists' works become more valuable than actual countries? Only time will tell. And now, to delve deeper into this tale of artistic opulence, we turn to our culture correspondent, Smithsonian Moss. Now at this point of the evening, we welcome listeners on FM who've just joined us. Waho culture vultures. It's your art-obsessed diva Smithsonian Moss, and I'm here to dish out the deets on a story that's more inflated than my Aunt Patty after Thanksgiving dinner. So picture this. The year is 2010, and some high roller with pockets deeper than the Mariana Trench just dropped a cool 65 million bucks on a hunk of bronze called Loam Ki Marsh Un. That's the walking man one for you non-Francophiles. And guess what? It's not even life-sized. Created by the Swiss maestro of the skinny figure, Alberto Giacometti, this sculpture is so sought after. It's like the holy grail of the art world, except you can't drink from it, and it won't grant you eternal life. It's part of a series of six, and let me tell you, each one is more emaciated than the last. Now, the second edition of this bad boy previously held the record for the priciest artwork sold at auction in 2010. But, like any good drama, there's a twist. Another Giacometti piece, probably a skinny dog or a thin slice of air, surpassed it in 2015. Giacometti, the man himself, was like the OG of making things look wispier than my hair on a humid day. Sculptor, painter, draftsman, and printmaker, the dude was a quadruple threat, like the James Franco of the art world, but with actual talent. And let's talk about the buyer for a sec. Who in their right mind spends 65 mil on a sculpture? That's like buying a whole island or funding a small coup d'etat. But no, they just had to have that bronzed, malnourished man taking a stroll. So, what's the moral of the story, folks? If you're a sculptor, start skipping meals and get to chiseling because apparently, starvation equals big bucks in the art game. And if you're a collector, maybe consider investing in something with a bit more meat on its bones, like a nice Rubens. That's all for tonight's culture report. Remember, art is in the eye of the beholder, but so is a good eye roll. News Bang. The only news program that tells it like it is, because it is. And now, a final look at tomorrow's headlines. The Times. U.S. forces liberate Santo Tomas internment camp. There's a photo there of a large group of people looking relieved. The Guardian. IRA bomb kills 12 in motor coach attack. And finally, The Independent. Philippine-American war begins in Manila. 
there's a graph there of a gunshot. That's it for tonight's Newsbang. Join us tomorrow for more historical events of the day. Presented in our signature overblown and inappropriate style. Good night. And remember, history is a joke that's on all of us. Tune in next time for more artificially intelligent hilarity. Newsbang is a comedy show written and recorded by AI. All voices impersonated. Nothing here is real. Good night.